The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Welcome to The Hearing with me, Kevin Poulter. In each episode, I chat with some of the most interesting characters in and around the legal profession. You'll hear about their lives, their loves, and sometimes we even get round to the law. In this episode, I'm joined by Lord Michael Howard of Lim. He's best known for his time as a government minister and as a former leader of the Tories. But Michael's life before Westminster involved a distinguished career at the bar. We talk about his days at university as one of the infamous Cambridge Mafia, where his rise to power may have seemed assured, but that doesn't mean he hasn't had his difficulties. And as a vocal supporter of the Leave Means Leave campaign, Michael's views on Brexit are crystal clear. But we also hear he has some personal regret over one of his most controversial ministerial decisions. The Hearing well, thank you uh, for, for joining us. Um, Not we, at all. we are here with a legal podcast, so we're going to have to touch on some law at some point. Um, That's okay. Before we get to your impressive political career, but really take us back to the beginning. What came first for you? Uh, was it law or was it politics? Well, the law came first because I practiced as a barrister for 21 years. I chose the law, I think, because I wasn't ever very sure that I'd make it into politics. And I thought the law would provide me with a satisfactory alternative career if I never made it into politics. But was there not a, uh, a secret wish also to do economics? And did you did you start with an economics degree? I started. Is that right? I did part one oh, okay. of the economics tripos at Cambridge, but then it got very mathematical. <laughs> I'm no good at that. <laughs> Hence uh, the chancellor job. We'll come on to maybe uh, later. But um, uh, so so uh, the interest was in politics, but but law was the sort of the foundation, I guess, for a future uh, well, it was stable a, it career. Well, it was a very interesting way of uh, earning a living. Uh, yes, and I, and I think still is, um, but I would, I would say that. Well, we'll talk about Cambridge as well, actually, um, because it was a popular place to be for uh, the future cabinet um, at the time you were there. Your contemporaries included, of course, Ken Clark, um, but there's, there's a long list. Um, I think Vince Cable was there at the same time. Douglas Heard around that time. No, Douglas was a bit was earlier. A, he was a bit earlier. Uh, Norman Lamont. I Norman was yeah. there at the same time. Yeah. Uh, many John, of John Gamma. Of course, yes. Uh, many of whom went on to be uh, lawyers as well as uh, yes. politicians. Um, what was the feeling like? Did, did you did you get a sense of uh, going places at the, at the time in Cambridge, or did that come later? We probably had a very conceited idea of our own abilities, but we, you know, we we had ideas, mm. uh, and we were interested in politics. We were friends. We've remained friends. There, we have an annual dinner of the, those of us who were um, on the Conservative Association committee, right, um, and who are still around. Sadly, some of our number. Are no longer with us. Is that always back in Cambridge, or does um, that move it's around? usually in London? But okay. we, we have, on occasion, um, done it in Cambridge. Mm. Yeah, and uh, so much was going on. Uh, and you say that you you were friends. Um, yet there were certain times where you had a bit of a clash with some of those friends as well. And is it not right? There was a time when you actually had a bit of a um, a disagreement with Ken Clark, and you pushed towards the Labour Party briefly. Well, not 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 really. We were competitive friends. Okay. is the way I'd put it. Um, there was there was a moment when I was uh, I was a bit disillusioned with the Conservatives, but I never I never joined the Labour Party okay. or anything like that. Okay, very quickly, uh, I think it was in 1966 you stood uh, for a a, a a seat. Yes, uh, up in Liverpool. I did, and that started your uh, love affair with Liverpool Football Club. No. Oh no, it didn't. No, 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 no. I had been a fan of Liverpool Football Club long before that. And indeed, when I went before the selection committee at Liverpool Edge Hill, 
they said, do you have any real connection with Liverpool? And I said, not really, except that since I was a small boy, I've been a great supporter of Liverpool Football Club, thinking it would help me a bit, but it was true. There was a deathly hush in the room. Every single member of the selection committee was an Everton fan. <laughs> and is, is that what you blame for your not, well, not being selected on that occasion? No, I was selected. Oh, you were selected. I was selected. I think, I think being selected, despite that, was the biggest achievement of my whole political <laughs> career. I'm conscious now that we're sat in a green room for this interview. Um, uh, but but, but don't, don't read too much into that. Similar with the, the politics. The chairs are reddish. Reddish. We'll, we'll stick with it. So, so you, you stood in 1966 and I think again in 1972 in, in Liverpool. 1970. 1970, sorry. Um, um, but didn't succeed on that occasion. Now, what was happening with your legal practice at that time? Well, um, to be perfectly honest, I was neglecting it a bit. But I made a resolution, which I didn't really think I'd keep, but to my astonishment, I did keep. I said to myself, I'd, just at the time that I was fighting my second election in Liverpool, mm. I became chairman of something called the Bow Group, which was quite a significant think tank in those days. And I'd been doing a lot of speaking round and about the place. Mm. And I said to myself, enough is enough. I've been neglecting the bar. Either what I've done so far will be enough to get me a seat or it won't. But from now on, I'm going to give the bar a fair crack of the whip. And to my amazement, I did that which probably accounts for the fact that it took me another 13 years <laughs> before I got into the House of Commons. <laughs> um, and, and, but, but you had, a, a, so I think, a mixed practice. Is that fair to say? So I started bar? off with a mixed practice, common law. And yeah. then how did that develop? Um, I, my first kind of specialisation was in employment law. Um, this was at the time of the Heath reforms, mm. the National Industrial Relations Court. Yes. Sir John Donaldson, all that. Very interesting and exciting mm. time yeah. to be involved in that um, area of the law. Well, really a time b- before that. Not a great deal of employment law around. Yeah, that's right. And then, um, yeah, it's often forgotten that it was a conservative government that introduced the law of unfair dismissal. Mm. And then as time went on, I started doing a bit of planning. And I really enjoyed that. And um, in the end, I moved into specialist planning chambers. So for mm. my last five years at the bar, I did mainly planning. And okay. And, and how, how was the job then? Was it, you, were, you were in London at the time or were you? Yes. Um, no, I've always, ever since. Well, I went to America for a year after yes. Cambridge. When I came back, I've lived in London ever since. So, so how, was the, uh, how was the job? Uh, how was life as a jobbing barrister in the, I'm guessing, the uh, early 70s? Well, I mean, it it went on, you know, I carried on practicing. I actually carried on practicing till 1985 Mm. when I joined the government. And it varied because my practice varied. It varied a lot during that time. In the early 70s, Mm. I was still doing mainly employment law. Um, In the early 80s, by the time we get to the early 80s, I was doing almost entirely planning. And do you think that gave you a good foundation for your later positions in the government? It's quite interesting, that question. I, I, I think it's some and some. I think it does help. Mm. Um, it helps you master a brief. Okay, that's very important. And up to a point, it helps you marshal an argument. But there's a very big difference between addressing a court and addressing the House of Commons. And I think some lawyers n- never quite get the hang of the difference. 
Um, whether I was one who did or didn't, I leave it to others to decide. As we come more up to date, we'll, we'll maybe explore that a little bit more uh, in some of your later uh, clashes in, in, in the chamber. Um, but during, well you, well, you had an incredibly successful career and you took Silk before making that transition I did. through to government. Yeah. Uh, now, was that a difficult was it a difficult job to give up at that time? Um, you were successful. You were presumably... It was very uh, difficult financially. Yeah. Um, you know, because it meant, particularly when I stopped altogether and, mm. and became a junior minister on, um, you know, pretty low salary. But mm. politics was what I'd always wanted to do. And so when the opportunity finally arose <laughs> and I was selected for Folkestone and Hythe, um, you know, there was never any doubt in my mind that that was what I wanted to do. Mm. And how, uh, I said, how difficult was it to make that transition personally? Because Folkestone's not, um, it's not too far away. It's not the, not the furthest constituency away, but it's still a travel um, to, to work with those constituents rather than working with clients, I guess. Well, to be honest, the first two years were very difficult, possibly the most difficult years um, of all, really, because I was trying to ride two horses. I was a, I was trying to keep my practice going yeah. while being a backbench member of parliament. And that was very difficult, um, you know, because you never quite knew where you were going to be and where you had to be. Um, and I was agonising mm. over it. I'd done it for two years and my wife and I had really come to the conclusion that I couldn't carry on doing it because mm. it was impossible. And um, just at, in September of 1985, the decision was made for me because Margaret Thatcher asked me to join the government. And uh, there's a lot of people throughout uh, history have transitioned from the law uh, into government. That continues to happen. Um, as you said, some some people are maybe a better, uh, more adept uh, than others at making that change. But what do you think it is that attracts people A, to law, uh, and then B, to politics. Uh, you, you mentioned that there's not a great deal of... There's some crossover, but not a great deal of crossover. Well, there is. The, the big things are you learn to master a brief. Yes. And that's a very important thing in politics, especially if you're a minister, when you, you have a lot of briefs to master. And I suppose it's talking, isn't it? I mean, you talk, if you're, if, particularly if you're a barrister, maybe different if you're a solicitor. Mm. Or, or even the kind of barrister who specialises in advisory work. But I was always interested in advocacy. Right. And, you know, as a, as a barrister, you talk. And as a politician, you talk. Talking has got a lot to do with it. This was also convincing, because uh, it came from uh, yeah, Cambridge as well, the yes. debating yeah, uh, no, that's uh, right. pushes it through. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that the uh, sort of the, the, the current uh, group of MPs <coughs> that we've got, uh, including the ones that have moved from, from the law, uh, do you think it's, it's Parliament the same as it used to be? When you first started out, we don't seem to see the characters that we, that we used to have. Well, um, I think there's a great danger in, in looking at the past through rose-tinted glasses. But Parliament is undoubtedly very different now. And I know there are one or two people who do it, but I think it must be extraordinarily difficult now to combine practising at the bar and uh, and being a member of Parliament. Be not least because the hours have changed so dramatically. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in my day, Parliament never sat in the House of Commons, never sat in the mornings, mm. um, except for Fridays when you didn't have to turn up because it was backbenchers' day. And went on to 10 o'clock every night and sometimes later. So y you could mm. spend a day in court, go to the house, vote, um, 
do whatever you had to do for your constituents, mm. prepare your case for the next day, and so on. It's virtually impossible to do that now. Yeah, I'm not sure of anyone that is still trying. And there are um, some. A few yeah, people there, have there, that. There are, there are, uh, there are. And I'm full of admiration for them. I don't quite know how they do it. But, but being the servant of two masters in, in itself is probably very difficult, mm. and 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 um, and might also have a limit on your on the briefs that you're receiving, um, either positive or negative. Well, the trouble is that that was the dilemma that faced me when I was agonising over this because. It's, it's virtually impossible to practice at the bar part-time. Mm. Mm. You know, you're either doing it properly or people lose interest in you. Picking back up on the employment experience that you had briefly, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the reforms that were happening at the time you were going into uh, the profession, but lots of changes happening socially at the same time that you were in Parliament and, and, and um, I suppose, trying out uh, for, for Parliament and various seats. Did... Did you think you were in a good position and a strong position to to make the arguments that you were making? Did you feel that having been employed and having seen the experience of other people as an employment uh, barrister, uh, that that gave you a better viewpoint, perhaps? Than what? Than somebody who's maybe not had that uh, life experience or that work experience. Because we see many politicians now who come in as as career politicians. Yeah. Um, well, I, I I do think it's it's an advantage to have done a different job mm. first, but there are clearly some people who have done extremely well in politics um, without that prior experience and mm. who have gone from, you know virtually straight from university to being special advisors or working in central office yep. or the labour equivalent and then special advisors and then they get into the house. And it's, you know, I, I think it's quite difficult to generalise, but I mm. do think it's an advantage to have had a different job first. And one that gave you uh, many perspectives as well. Yes. And uh, you've obviously held some of the most important positions in government um, in, in a long career. Uh, many of them, um, well, initially, as you've mentioned, under Margaret Thatcher. Now, how was that phone call? Or was it called into the office? It, it was quite a funny phone call, actually. <laughs> I was in Kent, and the call came just before lunch, and someone I don't know who said, would you be free to take a call from the Prime Minister this afternoon? Okay. Well, it didn't take a long time to think about the answer <laughs> to that. So I said yes, and we sat down to lunch. And then, um, and then there was another call which said, would you be free to come to London to see the Prime Minister this afternoon? And I said, fine, I can't get there before, whatever. And my wife said, why does she want to see you? Mm. Can't you do it on the phone? <laughs> and my daughter, who was then six, said, well, I expect her telephone's out of order, mummy. <laughs> <laughs> I presume that wasn't the case. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was the case. Um, but, but, but I suppose... That could mean one of two, well, it could mean two things. Um, it could mean good things or bad things. Uh, well, it couldn't mean bad things because I wasn't, the, she, she couldn't sack me from anything because I didn't have a job to be sacked uh, from. That's true. Uh, and, 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 and how was that? How did that conversation go? Because what was your first... My first job was um, Minister for Corporate and Consumer Affairs in the old DTI. Mm. And uh, it, was a, it, was, it was generally thought to be the best parliamentary undersecretary job going um, because it was it, it, you were the minister for the city mm. 
And the main reason why she wanted me to do the job was to take through Parliament the Financial Services Bill, which was the first real attempt to mm. regulate financial services. But I had responsibility for consumer affairs as well and insurance. And it was a big job. It's a pretty I, broad brief. It oh, was. Yes. It was a broad brief. And um, no, I enjoyed it. And how, uh, so what was that first moment of <coughs> sitting around the table? Well, the first, I'd, I'd never, I, I'd no idea where the DTI was. <laughs> I'd never, I never made a speech on anything to do with the DTI. Um, but my driver, fortunately, <laughs> I had a driver and he turned up and fortunately he knew where the DTI was. Um, so, you don't have Google Maps back so then. Didn't, no, we didn't have Google Maps. So, but anyway, he took me to the DTI. And um, no, it was all it was all very interesting. And and you went on, obviously, as I've said, to hold uh, some incredible positions. But whilst as Home Secretary, you were quite well known for taking a perhaps a tough or hard line uh, on a few things. One of them being criminal justice, hmm. and I think the the old uh, motto "prisons work," and bringing about I think this is correct and correct me, but a fifteen percent fall in crime. Um. I'm not sure. Was it quite fifteen percent? Well, I I usually have that figure. Somebody's complimenting head. you online, and whoever I've got it, that it from. Was something. <laughs> it was along those lines. And the point is that it it was it was actually unprecedented. Because mm. when I went there, the the officials, the first thing they did was they showed me a graph which showed what had happened to crime over the previous fifty years, and it just went like yeah. that. And they said crime has gone up the last fifty years at around five percent a year. Home secretary. And it will carry on going up at around 5% a year. And the first thing you must understand is that there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> and that was not advice I was inclined to take. So, I mean, we did a lot of things, and mm. a lot of other people um, deserve a lot of the credit, um, the police and so on. Um, but, yeah, no, we did t turn things around. And what do you think was... Uh, we're talking about prisons. Um, uh, was it was it that threat? Was it the more uh, robust sentencing guidelines? We did a whole load of things. I I well, how long have you got? <laughs> I went in. I would never expected to be Home Secretary. I never made a speech on Home Office affairs either. So I went there with a completely open mind. Mm. I had no agenda at all, and I spent the first few months listening, especially listening to mm. police officers. I went around the country, I spent a lot of time in canteens, police canteens, and it opened my eyes because they were pretty fed up. Mm. They said to me, you know, we wonder whether it's worth doing what we do. If we manage to find someone who committed a crime, mm. the chances are the CPS won't prosecute. If the CPS do prosecute, the chances are they'll be acquitted. And if by some miracle they're convicted, they'll probably be sent home with sixpence from the pool box. Mm. So what are we doing with ourselves? Mm. So I set out to put in place a comprehensive plan. Mm. I wanted to deter people from committing crimes. So we put a lot of closed-circuit television cameras in place. Mm. And people realised they were there and actually... Took note. Yeah, we think of that as being uh, sort of the privacy attack, invasion of privacy, being quite a, a new thing. But as you say, this yeah. is back in the 90s. It was. And that also made it easier to detect criminals, which was the second strand. First, deter them from mm. committing crime. Mm. Secondly, detect them if they have committed a crime. And the third thing was 
how do you convict them if they're guilty without prejudicing the innocent? Mm. And so I changed the the right to silence. Yeah, I didn't. I, people still had the right to be silent when questioned, but previously, if they had exercised that right, no one could comment on it at court. So you could have someone who remained silent when he was asked mm. at the scene of the crime, remained silent when he was questioned at the police station, but then came to court and said, um, oh, I wasn't burgling anybody, I was just popping into my brother-in-law's house, never having mentioned this yep. before. Yep. And the change I made was that it could be mentioned, so that from then on, the prosecution could say, why didn't you tell the policeman this if mm. it was your brother-in-law's house? Mm. And that could be taken into account. And how was that met oh, as a change? Huge opposition. Mm. Oh, you know, this is a lifelong, generations long liberty of every Englishman and all that sort of stuff. And who was it saying? Because the judiciary got involved, was that no, right? No, the judiciary, the criminologists. There was a lot of opposition to everything I did. <laughs> um, so that was that. That yeah. helped to get people convicted. And then the question was, what happens... If they are convicted, and I said prison works, yep. by yep. which I meant, I mean, a lot of people have tried to distort it since and have said prison manifestly doesn't work in terms of rehabilitation. Mm. Unfortunately, that is true. Yep. And unfortunately, no one has really found the key to rehabilitation. But what prison did and does mm. is to ensure that the people who are in prison can't carry on committing crimes. Yep. And what I was told when I was wandering around the police stations was that a relatively small number of career criminals commit a disproportionately large amount of crime. Mm. So if you can take them out of circulation, superintendents used to tell me, we know the people in our area, when they're in, inside, mm. our crime rate drops. Mm. When they come out again, it goes up again. So, obviously... No, I never suggested that everybody committed and committing every criminal offence should go to prison. But if you could target the professional career criminals and put them inside mm. when they had repeatedly offended, it would be likely to have an effect on the crime rate. Mm. And But that also has an effect on the economy, of course. And I think that that was one of the things that then, well, I think it's huge expense in in. in in the prisons and whether it's disproportional or not it's impossible to say because there are so many factors at play but uh, presumably no regrets it's, this is the right thing to do at the oh, time no regrets at all and it, actually it none of the changes that i put in place have been reversed mm. I mean, we've had a succession of labor home secretaries conservative home secretaries of differing views mm. about the system but none of the changes that i put in place have been reversed so on the back of that do you do you ever get to a point where you think actually it's just not worth it all this all this hassle all this ob ob objection um some ways all this obstruction to just doing what i think is the right thing to do or having considered all these other viewpoints this is the right thing to do how hard is it to just to to move forward from well that? it is hard but the reason you go into politics i think this applies to everyone is to make a difference mm. and you know you know from the beginning that it's a you know, it, it, it's not going to be an easy life. It's it's not a bed of roses. I mean, if, and if youngsters come to me today and say, should I get into politics? I say, don't get into politics unless you absolutely have to, mm. unless you have a burning desire to make a difference because it's mm. a really rotten life. It takes a toll on your privacy, on your family, on your 
private life, on everything. But if you have this burning desire to make a difference and you think you can make a difference, it can be phenomenally rewarding. Not obviously in a financial sense, yeah, yeah. but but in a sense that you've you have changed things for the better. And touching back on uh, what we were talking about earlier, the difference between the law and politics. I suppose with the law, you're making a difference on a case by case basis. Often, with politics, you can make a wholesale difference. Absolutely, and and yeah. that surely is one of the attractions. Oh, absolutely right. Um, touching uh, on your uh, experiences with the law. Um, more recently, you've had your own experience from the other side. Um, and I'm not going to labour this too much, uh, pardon the pun, uh, but a, a speeding conviction. And you've been through the court process yourself yes, and come through the other side. Yes. Talk us through that. How is it being part of that system that you had a... Well, I'm afraid uh, it didn't show the justice system at its best. I got the letter from the police mm. saying that my car had been... Um, seen speeding and who was driving it mm. and my wife and I we'd been away so there was quite a long gap between the incident and our getting the, and our seeing the letter and it's a journey we take very often we mm. share the driving we've got no particular pattern and we genuinely couldn't remember neither of us could remember and that's what I said yeah and the magistrate the district judge mm. believed us and mm. said we were telling the truth mm. but convicted me on the basis there's a, there's a thing in the form you have to say that if you aren't the driver, you have to say who was. Mm. And I'd said, my who not who was, but who might have been. And I said, my wife. Mm. And she, she convicted me because in, I should have said um, Sandra Howard of 66 Street, London, SW1, and not my wife, which I thought was completely ludicrous. And the divisional court agreed. Yes. It was a very expensive process, appealing it. Um, now, I'm going to touch on something which brings us up to date, uh, which is Brexit. And look, we, 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 know, we know all the arguments, I think, and we've heard all of them now. But um, in your view, looking <coughs> forward, what are the chances of a successful negotiation? I think they're pretty high. Are you saying that because of your confidence in the, uh, in the, in the, the leave vote? No, I think it really, my, I think it because it's so much in the interests of the European Union to have a good deal for us and mm. a good deal for mm. them. You know, in terms of trade, they sell much more to us in terms of goods than mm. we do to them. They, they don't want to create barriers. In terms of financial services, they don't use the city because they love us. They use the city because it's the best financial centre in the world. Yeah. And it's in their interest to continue to use it. And so I think that in the end, we look back on this rather messy period as something we had to go through. But in the end, I think we'll have a reasonable deal. And when it comes to legal issues, um, we talk about having a stable financial centre, but we've also got a strong and, sort of a, coining a phrase, strong and stable legal centre yes. as well. Yes. And uh, do, we, do we think there's a risk in how we are viewed, not only across Europe, but across the world, if we cut those relationships? Is there going to be an issue, for example, with recognising our judgments, with arrest warrants, with sharing of information? Um, with our criminal and civil matters? Or do you think this is something which can easily be uh, I, I don't know that it can easily be resolved, but it should be capable of being resolved. Mm. Because, again, if you look at the um, arrest warrant, mm. 
uh, a lot of my colleagues don't want us to stay part of the arrest warrant. I mm. would prefer us to stay part of it. European countries want people arrested here much more than it's used by us in European mm. countries. So again, it's completely in their interest to have a sensible arrangement on that. Now, you know, of course, if they want to cut off their nose to spite their face, um, it may not happen, yeah. but I, I just can't believe they'd be so stupid. You don't think there will be any impact on the, the position of the law and the, and the legal process as a result of Brexit? Why? We won't be sending anyone anywhere else. Well, I, I why? Think, why? Why should there be? Well, I it, mean, they come, people use our people come to London. You're talking about people who come to London to arbitrate or whatever yeah, on, like, on disputes, divorce which, is an example. Yeah, it's hugely okay. popular. Yeah, well, 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 it's not going to affect our divorce law. That's nothing to do with the European Union. Um, nor should it affect arbitrations. People come here because of the integrity of our arbitrators and our judges and because of the common law and because mm. of the English language. No change. change. Good. Well, let's let's revisit this um, another time. Um, and just touching on a step further from that, um, the role of the European Court of Justice. Now, you're sitting in the Lords now, which has had the so it's, uh, jurisdiction as a court now taken over to the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court still then has the European Court of Justice to look up to. What do you think the role of the European Court should be in should be going forward when we're out when we're out if any um no role when we're out not even a reference well our courts can look at the decisions of other courts um now any court yeah they can look at decisions of the united states supreme court or the um, canadian supreme court australian supreme court mm. and from time to time they do and i'd have no objection to their looking to the ecj in the same way that they look at the decisions of other courts. Um, so if a point arises which is being considered by the ECJ, they can have a look at it. It's not binding on them, of course. Mm. It wouldn't be binding on them, but if it would help to inform their decision-making process, I've no, no problem with that. So strong confidence in the future of the country post-Brexit. Mm. Confidence it's going to happen. Mm. Um, confidence on the timing. Um, yes. I mean, you know, there's a... There's a um, Yes. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. Uh, and yeah. there's, a lot of, there's a lot to do in the Lords as well, no doubt. And um, I, I must ask, ask you a question um, about the Local Government Act back in 1988. Um, right. It, you were Local Government Minister, I, I believe, was, at the yes. time. Yeah, I, 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 and that the is one of mine. Yeah. Well, yes, a controversial uh, <laughs> Section 28. Now, to put you on the spot a little bit, I'm afraid, but looking back... Um, it had a huge impact, and we can know that now uh, on a whole generation of young men and women uh, who didn't have maybe access to the information or support, um, indeed education that they they perhaps would have benefited from at the time. Now, is this again something that you stand by, or is it something that you look back on maybe with a little bit more disappointment? Well, I don't agree with your assessment. I don't think it had a huge impact. It was quite limited in its scope. It was. It was the, 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 what Clause Twenty Eight said mm. was, um, schools shouldn't promote homosexuality. Mm. Um, now, in rhetoric, look, it was thirty years ago. Times have changed. Yep. I've changed my views. Um, it was a mistake, um, and I do regret it. But I don't think it had. 
the huge impact that you suggested in your question. Mm, well, uh, having lived through it uh, in some ways, I, I think it has set, um, I think, society back. And being an employment lawyer, as, as you were as well, um, I, I think the the rights that came with homosexuality, uh, LGBT rights, I think as a consequence not just not just because of that, but the whole culture at the time and society at the time. Well, um, society were pushed back. The, the culture has changed. You know, mm. of course, you're quite right. Society has changed its views, and culture has changed. Mm. And I'm not denying that Section 28 was a part of that, mm. but I don't. I, I don't think it was a major part. Okay. Well, look, um, we, we don't have to... Uh, there's so many things that I could sit here and talk about, and thank you for your time. Uh, it's been fascinating. Um, uh, I, I'm presuming no desires just yet to return to the bar? Oh, no. Look, it's I stopped practising, as I've said, in 1985. It's changed beyond recognition. More than politics? Um, I think almost... Well, no, they both changed hugely. Mm. In a way, I mean, it's changed just as much as politics, you know. We never had skeleton arguments or anything of that kind then. It's, mm. it's completely different. And starting out again, would you would you do it all again? Let's go around yes. a second time? Yes, oh, definitely. Good, good. Yes. Well, look, thank you very much again. And uh, well, we, we look forward welcome. to uh, hearing from you a little bit later. Thank you. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.